Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So how many of you saw the front page of the New York Times on Monday? Well, you guys aren't very good readers, are you? Well, I didn't see it either, but I heard about it. So let's put it up. New York Times, huge, obviously, publication. Front page, down at the bottom, front page, though. When does life start? A post-row conundrum. Questions that goes beyond politics, law, and science. Now, I had to kind of chuckle when I first read it because a post-row conundrum. A conundrum is one of those things that, like, how do I make sense of this? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, well, that's not a post-row conundrum. That's a humanity conundrum from the very beginning, right? This, this debate about when does life begin has been taking place all the way back. Now, by God's grace, his people and the church, we understand that, I hope. I hope you understand when that is. And we would believe that that's a conception at fertilization. We believe that that's when God begins to start life. I had a man come up to me after the first service. He said, now, I just want you to hear this. This is simple. I said, okay. He said, contact. I'm like, okay, contact. He said, you got some soil? He said, when you put that seed in the soil, what happens? Makes contact, begins to grow just like that. He said, that's what happens, right? Immediately, growth begins on contact. When the, when the sperm fertilizes the egg, immediately, life begins and growth starts to happen. And so, as, from a biblical perspective, we uphold that. We absolutely think that that is God's word. So the question is, is why are we still wrestling with this question? Why is humanity still wrestling when life begins? God has answered that question from the very beginning. And yet we still, in the world, still are wrestling with that question. It says there that the question goes beyond politics. Yeah, we can, if, if you, um, I don't normally stay up and watch these things, but I watched the, the swearing in of the speaker the other night and the late theatrics of all of that and was educated a little bit about our, our judicial or our, our political system and our legislative system and all that that takes place. We can debate on the, at the floor of Congress or in the Senate and the House of Representatives. We can debate where life begins all we want, but it does not change when life begins. We, we can make laws as we are doing, as, as every state now in, in the union is making laws about when it's legal, when it's not legal, how long it's legal for. And, and I'm so grateful that we live in a state that is trying to, to condense that down to six weeks. And we need to be in prayer for when the Ohio Supreme Court hears this, that, that they will uphold the band and the heartbeat bill and that will go into effect again. But no matter what law we make, it's not going to circumvent the law of God. It's not going to. Science. We can debate science. We can, but see, that's the thing. We'll just debate it. But we're not going to, God is the author of science. He is the creator of science. I remember when I was very young, I was probably 20 years old, I was standing in my mother and dad's kitchen, and um, I was talking to a good friend of mine who uh, was in medical school, um, and we were debating this very issue 30, 40 years ago, Right? When does life start? And he was trying to make, well, maybe it's when the baby is viable outside the womb. Well, with technology, that has moved. Like when that's possible has moved. 
So clearly, that's not a determining factor when life begins. It can never be used. Science can never be used in that way to be able to determine that. God, once again, has spoken and said, when does life begin? And he tells us, we believe many times in Scripture, he makes it clear that it's at conception. So, I go back to the question, right? Why has this not been able to be resolved in humanity? Why have we, why are we doing this? What, what is happening? Because clearly, people don't have the answer to this question. There's not clarity on this question when life begins, Abortion is the leading cause of death worldwide for the last four years. Now, Jenny put up some horrible numbers, 66 abortions here in Montgomery County a week. We could talk about how many abortions in the United States. Horrific number. world meter it's a website that you can go to that tracks statistics. Uh, I kind of came onto it when, when COVID was here and we were tracking what countries, what, what's happening, and estimates based on their numbers that they gather over 40, close to really to 44 million children are aborted every year. I just want you to set with that number for a second. You take all the cancer and AIDS and um, lung issues with, with due to smoking, you take uh, communicable diseases, all of that, and you add all those things up, that still doesn't equal that number. 44 million. The World Health Organization estimates that number much higher. They estimated that over 70 million children are aborted every year. Now, I want, you to, I want you to understand that number for me. Because sometimes when we talk about these large numbers, they're really more that, that we can even begin to kind of compre- comprehend. So let's, let's use the 70 million number for a second. And maybe it's not right. Maybe it's 44 million. Either way, it really doesn't matter. But 70 million babies a year. That's 20% of the United States population. Basically, in five years, humanity will abort the entire population of the United States. That's just almost incomprehensible. Let's look at it on a day. Do you know today is January 8th? Based on 44 million, that's 120,000 children will be aborted today. 120,000 children today. So, it leads me to ask the question, why would humanity do this? Why would people do this? Why would we do this? Right? What would lead us to think that that is acceptable and okay? Are there difficult circumstances? Yes. Are there cases that I can't even imagine in other third world countries, what people are going through? Yes. But Scripture tells us that we never do wrong to do right. We never do wrong to do right. Because as soon as you go down that path, all sin becomes permissible at one level or another. Because we can justify anything we want. And so, it leads me back to a passage that I've been kind of quoting from and, and talking about and teaching from a lot in the last few months. 
sometimes little snippets. A few weeks ago when we um, had a time of prayer for repentance for our nation and, and really over the Respect for Marriage Act and what's happening in our country and, and the movement we've had in marriage and, and moving away from a biblical marriage, um, we, I quoted and I talked about this passage a little bit. So I, I want to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to read to you um, probably eight or nine verses from Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to make a few comments. We're not going to do a deep dive into all of this. I'm just going to make a few comments. But I think it's important because while we can legislate, while we can make laws and, and we can political debate, ultimately, we have to get to why we're here in this place. What is the root of this problem? Because if we're going to change anything, if we want to know how to pray and ask God to move in us, in our nation, in our homes, in our own hearts, in the world, we need to clearly understand where the problem is and what is the source of this, this really this horrible, horrific act of abortion. And so we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you got your Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along and maybe underline some things, take a few notes. I always love to see people writing in their Bibles because I know that they're studying and they're learning. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Just stop right there for just a second. That's the beginning of the problem right there. What was that? Did you hear what I said? <clears throat> because of our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We suppress it. What does that mean? It means we, we, we choose to push it out of our mind. We choose to suppress it. We choose to silence people that are speaking it. We choose not to listen to the word of God. We suppress it. We just close the Bible. We don't do it. We don't go to church. We don't hang around those people because they're, I'm going to suppress that. Why do we do that? I mean, if the truth of God, which is majestic and beautiful and, and, and life-saving. It would be everything you would think that we would want to go to it. But no, we want to suppress the truth. We want, we want to push it down. We want to push it down. That's where it begins. And, and, and what Paul is going to do here is he's going to begin to unpack a little bit. Why do we do that? What is the problem? If we begin to suppress truth, man, anything becomes viable for us. Because if the truth of God says this and I can suppress that, then I can live how I want. And that's really what you're going to see as, he, as Paul begins to, to share more and more about this. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Paul's just saying, look, what can be known about God is plain. You look at, you look at the world, you look at the stars, you look at, you know, what does it say in Psalmist? The Psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see here in Romans that the created things are beautiful, that you go outside and you see the sun, you see the clouds, you, you, you feel the air, you, you see the trees and the flowers, and it's clear that there's a creator, that God is existing. You look at an ultrasound, especially a 3D ultrasound, it is clear that God is creating life and that that's a baby. And oh my gosh, for the country, the, the for California and some of the other states that are taking abortion all the way up to the moment before birth, I pray that, that God will have mercy on them. I mean, I'm just really wanting to... Sh the people that are making those decisions in the legislature and the government are going to be held accountable for that. I mean, 
I know we will all be held accountable for sin, but see, here's the thing. In Christ, God takes his wrath out on and so that we don't have to be accountable for that because we're in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are not going to support that type of thing. I firmly believe that if we have a a true born-again spirit about us that we will not support that kind of thing. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we were without excuse. So Paul's just saying, look, it's so clear. Do you not see how clear it is? I mean, but we're so good at suppressing truth. We just don't want to deal with those things. And I've said this before. It's one of the things that while social media and phones have been just a great thing for so many things, and I mean, just this has been technologically breakthroughs. The problem, one of the problems with them, though, is that it keeps our attention all the time. So we have no time to contemplate who God is and his, his beauty and his majesty and his glory. We, we don't because our mind is so occupied in front of a screen somewhere, a TV screen, a, a movie screen, a, a, a TV, an iPad, a phone, something. We're so consumed from the time we wake up in the morning. I'm guilty. I'm laying in bed. I pull my, pick up my phone, check the weather, check this, check the email, right? Before I go to bed at night, I'm checking. I'm like, I'm trying to say, no, I got to let go of that. Let me have some time to just contemplate who God is and be in awe of who he is. Because the problem is, is that we, we come into the world, and we, how many of you go outside at night and look at the stars? Do you want to be in awe? The heavens declare the glory. Many of us have just become so inward, right? Our, our focus, our view has become so narrow. Paul is just saying, look, if you would just step back and, and pull back the curtain a little bit and take a moment to look, it will be clear. How can you abort a child at eight or nine months and that not be clear, that that is life? He goes on here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, here's the thing. Even people that have the knowledge of God, They want to suppress the truth, and and why? And we're going to see here in a minute why that is. And when that happens, our hearts become dark. There's this thing that happens in us. When we refuse the light of the gospel, when we refuse the truth of Scripture, when we begin to do those things, it says our thinking begins to change. Our hearts become darkened. Don't, Don't miss that. Why? Because Scripture says what? Sin starts in the mind. How, how do we... He says, by the renewing of your mind, right? We're transformed. Because he knows that there's a, a thought problem. What we're thinking in our hearts are a problem. Scripture says in the Old Testament, it says, we, we need a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. Our heart is decayed. Our heart is exceedingly wicked. Who can know it? Because our hearts are darkened because of sin. Our minds are corrupted and fallen. For although they knew, they had this knowledge, they did not honor him. But why? Because they're suppressing the truth. Or give thanks. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, I just want to stop there for a second. Every time I read that, I have to just like take a 
second to ponder that. So what's he saying here? They made idols. They made physical, structural, wood, metal things like a golden calf. They made them with their own hands. Are you following me? They got their own materials. They cut down the tree. They cooked the metal. They made it. They fashioned it. They did all these things. And then what do they do? They worship it. Okay. They made it. Why would you worship something that you just made? It makes no, how does that even make logical sense that the human mind and heart would do something like that? Does it take on divine properties all of a sudden because you made it? No. But you need to see when, when we do that, how far we've suppressed the truth to be able to worship an image, a material thing that we have made. Now, I will say, the enemy has gotten very strategic and crafty. Now, we don't necessarily build the thing to actually worship it the same way, but now he just has us worshiping everything that's made. And not in the same sense as maybe they did in the Old Testament. I'm sure some of that still goes on around the world. In fact, I know that it does. But we just begin to worship the created things all the time. Everything that we've made, our material things, whatever it may be. Sometimes even the uncreated thing, like our professions. Paul goes on there. It says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Now I believe that he's speaking primarily here of sexual immorality. Because he goes on here. It says, To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged, here it is again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They, now, they suppressed it. Now they're just exchanging it and saying, no, I want to believe the lie. I'm just going to exchange these two things, right? I, I want something that doesn't convict me. I want something that's not true. I want something. And why? Why would we want that? Why has Paul been able to explain this so clearly? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped, don't miss this, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So why did they exchange the truth for a lie? Because when they do that, their worship shifts. No longer is their worship of God and his truths. Their worship is the creature. Who's the creature? You, I, we're the creature. So we can suppress the truth and say, well, I don't need to worship the truth because the truth is wrapped up in God and I don't want to be told what to do. I want to live the life I want to live. I should be able to do anything I want and so I want to suppress the truth. I'm going to exchange the truth for a lie and I get to live however I want. And I want to worship myself. And so if I want to do something, I'll do it. It don't matter. Because I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's most important. I'm the one that gets to say what truth is. I'll suppress it. I'll exchange it. Whatever I need to do to be able to do what I want to do. That is the problem, folks. That's the problem. has been the problem ever since the beginning. Ever since the, since the garden. We want what we want. We talk about it around here all the time. 
whether it was Adam and Eve desiring to be like God and the, the, the serpent basically tricks them or it's Cain and Abel, he's jealous, he wants what he wants, he kills his son or he kills his brother. It just goes on and on and on. King David deciding he wants a woman even though it's not his wife, so he takes her and he doesn't want it to be found out. He wants it to be in secret, so he kills the husband. I and mean, we could just go on and on and on. Every one of you could share testimonies from your life as I could about how we do that in our own life. This goes so much farther than just this, this incredible, devastating thing about abortion. And so today, as we go back to that question about where does life begin, how do we begin to answer that question? Well, I think the only way we can truly answer this question is we have to acknowledge the truth of God. If we're hoping for lasting change in the world, and, and I am by no means am I trying to say that we, we shouldn't be putting all effort into things like hope rising and, and those type of things. Absolutely, we should be. We should be boots on the ground. We should be volunteering. We should be funding. We should be doing all of those things, prayer, bathing them in prayer, supporting them, sharing that. But ultimately, for true lifelong change, real life change is what our motto is here, has to begin first with acknowledging the truths about God. It's what we refuse to do. Even in the church, we're refusing to acknowledge the truths of God. What are, the, what are some of the truths of God? That he's made us male and female. Two genders. 10, 15 years ago, would you have imagined we'd be here today? I'm sure 100 years ago, would you have thought that we would be killing 44 million babies in the world? No. Because it is a strategic spiritual battle that we are just constantly giving into. And it's, it's, it's creeping into our hearts. It's creeping into the church. And so we have to find a way to acknowledge the truth of God. And when I use this term acknowledge, I want to be real clear because I, I really wrestled with what words to use. I switched them multiple times. This idea of acknowledgement and the way I'm talking about it, it's not just a, a head knowledge. Oh, I acknowledge that that's true, but I don't really believe it. I don't follow it. No, acknowledgement means I'm, I'm all in. I am believing it. I'm for it. I'm acknowledging it. It's, it's, I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to submit to the authority of God. I'm acknowledging it, and I'm part of it. Right? And so when I use this word acknowledgement, that's what I'm saying or acknowledge. And so we want to take a look at Psalm 139 in the few minutes we have remaining. And I'm going to be very high level here. We're going to be pretty quickly. And here what we see is David's pouring out his heart in this psalm. And he, he begins to realize some things about God and then obviously about himself. And so we're just going to walk through it. I just want to point three primary things that we see that David acknowledges here in the psalm. And I would argue that there are three things that we should be acknowledging in our life, right? These are, these are high-level but foundational things that we should acknowledge, right? And so before we do that, I want to give you the big idea. Protecting the unborn starts by acknowledging the truth about God. If we, if we really want to protect the unborn in the world, the truth of God has to be disseminated because that's what will change the heart. That's what will change the decision-making, right? 
we need to obviously deal with the, the consequences of people that aren't there, and we need to obviously be dealing with all of those things that are happening and, and the damage and, and, and providing counsel and, 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 and opportunities for ultrasounds, absolutely. But ultimately, at the same time we're doing that, we need to begin to attack the problem. And the problem is, is that people don't have knowledge of the Word of God, and so that then they have no opportunity to acknowledge the truth of God. And so that's why we send people and we spend money and we, we send people with the gospel around the world and all around. That's why we preach the gospel every Sunday here. That's why we continue to teach and, and do Bible studies is because we think the word of God is what changes the people of God. And it changes us. And so protecting the unborn starts by acknowledging the truth about God. So let's look at the first one. We're going to see this in 139 verses 1 through 6. David's first section. He breaks his psalm up in kind of a, in a structure here, and there's, there's basically three things or four things. We're not going to get to the last one today, but we're just going to talk about these first three. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 6 is that David acknowledges God knows everything about him or about you in this particular case. We have to acknowledge that God knows everything about you. Did you ever think about that? That's kind of a scary thought, actually. He knows everything and David is coming to this place where he has this realization that God knows it all. And he just lays it out so beautifully. Let's, let's follow along if you get your Bibles with you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows you. He searched you. He, David is just has this understanding that, oh, my gosh, the, God is, he knows me. He knows everything about me. Now, I don't know exactly when David was writing this. Good possibility it was after his time with Bathsheba and killing the husband. He's saying, you've searched me and you know me. You know my thoughts. He goes on there and says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He, he knows why you think what you do. The motivations behind the things that you don't even quite understand. Have you ever done something and then questioned why you did it? Because you're not even sure of your own motivation. Like, you want to do it for noble purposes. I have these things too often. I do something, especially here at church, I do something because I think, oh, no, this is, this is good. This is the right thing. And then I, I later I think, did I do that for selfish reasons? Did I do that because I wanted to be liked by somebody? Was that what really motivated me and not this noble thing that I was thinking about, right? And here I think David just has this picture. He says, you, you know what I don't even know about myself. He says, you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Everything you do, he's acquainted with. Even before a word was on my tongue, even before I said something, even before it was there in my head, you knew it. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Wouldn't that be great to be able to know what was going to be on our tongue before we said it? <laughs> so that we could not say it? Wouldn't it be great to know what your spouse is getting ready to say? So that you could say, oh, don't say that. <laughs> I know what's coming. You don't know it yet, but what you're going to say there is not going to be good. It's going to cause a lot of problems, right? But we don't. But God says, I know those things. I know what those thoughts are. I know what the next thing out of your mouth is going to be. In fact, Scripture goes on to say, I forget, it's in the gospel. It says, you know, the mouth is the overflow of the heart. And God says, I know your heart. I know what's going to come out of it. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, when I hear that verse there, you lay your hand upon me. You know, obviously there's certain places in text, we, we don't know exactly what David was thinking when he wrote that. 
Like, what does he mean there when he lays his hand, when you lay your hand upon me? And so I'm, I'm going to just take a little freedom here and say what, what I think maybe is a possibility. I think David is saying, God, you, you come along, and even though you know me, you lay your hand upon me like it's going to be all right. I've got you. I'm here. It's this intimacy that, that David is painting. This isn't a God that's, un, that's removed from our circumstances. He is there, and he's present. And he lays his hand upon David like, I'm here. I know what you did. I know why you did it. I'm here. Obviously, I don't have something quite so amazing like that, but many years ago, when my wife and I first started uh, attending church, we were actually attending Salem Church of God, and, and God was uh, working there, and there was a pastor. Um, we, it was right when we first few months we were there. A guy's name was Dr. Sebastian. He was a great pastor, great, great, great godly man. And um, 800 people, I don't know, 900 people in that place, gigantic. And, and back then, that was a long time ago, um, I was probably 30, pagers. Nobody had cell phones that I'm aware of, and we had pagers. And I had a pager for work. And I'm sitting there on the aisle of this gigantic church. And for, for some reason, this particular Sunday, the pastor's choosing to preach from the floor, and he's walking around. Just my luck. And um, my pager starts to go off. I mean, you could hear it in this whole place, 800 people. Beep, 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 beep. I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling. You know, you're trying not to, like, I don't want to do it too obviously that it's me. So I'm trying to be cool and, and click it off. I don't know how long, a few minutes later, he's walking and he walks right next to, I'm sitting right on the aisle. And he walks right, and he stops. He's preaching. He doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't address me, but he lays his hand on my shoulder. And it was like, I know, and it's okay. You know, like, that's kind of how I felt. He never mentioned anything to me later. He never called me out on it after the service. He was just a way of saying, young man, it's all right, right? And I, I kind of sense that when, when David says here, and lay your hand upon me. Like, he's just saying, David, I know you. And so, what, what do we see happen here then in verse 6? David kind of turns and, and, and begins to understand the majesty of God and worship begins to kind of to crest its head here in his speech. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. David is beginning to see that God is omniscient, omnipresent. He's, just, he's, he's holy, he's He's majestic. He's seeing him and says, God knows everything about me. It's more than I can comprehend, right? It's a humbling thing. And when we begin to realize these, these truths about God, it begins to lead to worship in our heart. And you'll see that that, that continues here in David's psalm. All right, so acknowledge God knows everything about you. The second thing we're going to see here in David's part of his psalm is that we need to acknowledge you cannot hide from God. So David has this natural progression that says, if he knows everything about me, the reason he knows everything about me is because he's always with me, right? The only way he can know everything about me and everything that's in my head is that he never is, I'm never without him. He's always there. And so here we pick it up in verse 7. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Hmm. Notice what he says, where should I flee from your presence? I think what David is trying to say is like, I, there's times I want to run from you. I, I want to hide. 
You know, after I slept with Bathsheba, I'm sure he wanted to run and hide. He wanted to flee from God's presence. He didn't want to think about that. He wanted to suppress the truth of God. He wanted not to do that. And then when he has his, her husband killed, obviously David is sharing his heart and says, I, I want to flee. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And then he just kind of expounds it and he says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. He's just getting this picture of, of the beauty of who God is and the magnitude. And then he says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. So what's he saying? He says, even if I could hide in the darkest of places, if night would cover me, if darkness would just cover me, sometimes here spiritually, I think, and even physically, the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as the light for you. David has got this realization that there ain't any place dark enough that I can hide. There isn't any place that I can go, even in the darkest of darkness, that you are not there and can see everything about me. Can you imagine if humanity had that understanding of truth about who God is? How we would live? If we, even the church, if we really had and meditated on those two truths, that God knows everything about us, everything that we're ever going to do, think about what's coming next, and that he's always there with us in the backseat of the car when you're trying to talk to your girlfriend into having sexual relationships or vice versa. When you're contemplating committing adultery or lying to someone or to stealing, he's there. He's there. When you gossip, he's there. Acknowledge you cannot hide from him. All right, the third thing. David now and his understanding is just, as God is kind of just showing himself to David in a way that's kind of overwhelming David. David now gets to the point in the psalm where he, he acknowledges God as creator. He basically is, has this appreciation now that says, okay, God is much larger than me. He knows everything I do. He's everywhere I go. I cannot escape from him. And now he has this deep core foundational understanding that God made me. Right? He is my creator. David starts out in verse 13 of the psalm, and he says, You formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David is saying, you intricately did this. This, this whole idea of being um, formed me, it's, it's fashioned. This word translates, it's fashioned, it's shaped. And, it, and you knitted me together. It's this it's idea of, of love and care and and. and intricate design, right? And now that we have DNA and we can see all of the genetic code, we can see the, the incredible creation ability. Uh, years ago, and I won't get this right, but I think when a, when a baby is, is growing its sight and its eyes are coming into being, there's like a million nerve endings and a, and to connect to the eye, and, and they have to connect exactly right for sight to be possible. Okay, 
I think that's like classifying as being knitted together in a way that beyond blows our mind. We can't understand so beautifully. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 73 says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. This is understanding of the truth that God is our creator. David goes on here in verse 14 of Psalm 139. And notice what happens here. Now he's, he's beginning to see God again. And what do we see? We see a glimpse of what happens when we begin to acknowledge the truth about God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? Praise begins to creep into David's heart because he begins to realize that God is wondrous and glorious and creator. And, and what, what happens to him is he begins to, to be humbled by that. That's why he says fearfully and wonderfully made. He has an appreciation of the, the majesty of God here. Notice the next verse. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That kind of goes back. Let's, when David says, my soul knows it very well, what, what's he saying? He says, like, at my core, I know who you are. Now, contrast that to Romans 1. It says, even though they knew God, they refused to honor God. But yet, we are without excuse, it says in Romans because we know, we suppress the truth. We trade the truth of God for a lie. So here the psalmist is David saying, look, even in my very core of who I am and my soul, I know the truth. I, I cannot escape it. In fact, I will say that the scripture, I think, clearly teaches that the truth has been implanted and impressed upon us, every one of us, because we are created in the image of God. We know certain fundamental, foundational truths about who God, but we refuse to believe them. We suppress them and we trade them in for the lie because we want to worship ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. And whether that's having an abortion, not having to deal with all of the complications of it, or maybe whatever it is, whether it's the gossip, the lie that you want to get out of something, stealing money, it doesn't matter. You want what you want and so you just do it. And so here David is saying, I know at my very core that you've created me and I'm yours. Then he goes on there and says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Once again, that kind of reflects back to this. I can't even go, even when I was in the womb, Father, you knew, you saw me, even there you saw me. Just like when David earlier was saying, there's no place that I can go to hide from you. He's saying, even then you see me, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Very powerful line there. God is saying, look, I saw you even before you looked like a baby. I knew you in your unformed substance. So once the sperm connects with the egg and fertilization happens and there's this beautiful life that begins, God is saying, even then, before science can see that, before science can understand it, before laws are enacted, I know you. I see you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when I was yet, there was not none of them. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This idea that he knows us before we, in our, in our minds, knowable and and in our culture, being able to say that we're a child or a person, 
Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah in chapter one and verse five, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And like he's now even saying, before I formed you, like all the way back to conception, before even that, I'm, I'm forming you, but before then, I still knew you. And your days were born, excuse me, and before you were born, I consecrated you. He set him apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God had a plan. God was gonna use Jeremiah. He was gonna do this. And he's just affirming to Jeremiah that way before you were born, way before you even had substance and mass and look like a baby. I knew you and I consecrated you and I set you apart for a purpose. And so you have to ask, well, does he only do that with Jeremiah or does he do that with all of us? Galatians, Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter one, the New Testament, verse 15, says, but when he, and this is Paul talking now, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who knew and who called me by his grace, Paul's just saying, I get it. God knew me before I was born. There's purpose in life. He's God. He knows me before even I was born or made. So, what do these three things lead us to? And obviously, an acknowledgement that God knows everything, an acknowledgement that we cannot hide from God, and an acknowledgement that He is our Creator. He's your Creator, my Creator. When we really begin to, and this is what we see now with David, he, he has this appreciation, this understanding of who God is and what he's done and that he is the creator. What does that lead to in our life? If we will just do that, if we will just kneel, right? If we will just do that, what happens? God places worship in us. I didn't call this a next step, but it's just the next point I wanted to try and make from the text here. Acknowledgement of the truth of God leads us to praise and worship. Acknowledgement of the truth of God. When we really wrestle with the truths, and sometimes those truths are hard, don't get me wrong, but when we will acknowledge those truths, those hard truths sometimes, and obviously culturally very non non-cultural truths, right? Things that go against the grain of our culture. It ultimately leads to praise and worship. And we see that in David's psalm. He goes on here in, in the last two verses, 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Now his heart is turned not to himself, but to God and the preciousness of who God is. It's worship. How vast is their sum? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Like, even in my sleep, when I'm there, you're there. When I wake, I'm with you. But we just want to suppress the truth. And so I want to, I want to ask you a question as we close. Are you acknowledging the truth of God in your life? Are you acknowledging? You say, oh yeah, I believe. That's not what I'm asking. That's, that's one of the questions I'm asking. I'm asking you, are you acknowledging the truths of God? See, there's lots of truths of God that, that, that we struggle to acknowledge. Many, even in professing Christians, and I'm not saying whether they're Christians, many professing Christians are still pro-abortion. They're not acknowledging. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not saved. That's between God and them. I'm saying, but they're refusing to acknowledge, I think, a biblical truth about God and his creator and when creation happens and when, when the unborn life begins. And they refuse. And they refuse, I believe, once again, because we want what we want. We want to avoid hardship. We want this to happen, that to happen. It doesn't fit into our, our plan for our life. 
But as Kelly chose, it changed the life of another family. Are you acknowledging the truth of God when it comes to marriage? We see our culture, even in the church now, has changed. Many churches have changed that truth. They've not changed the truth, but how they believe in the truth has changed. As I said a few weeks ago, the Respect for Marriage Act, now basically the United States makes it legal for basically any marriage to happen between anyone, doesn't matter, gender, whatever. Are you acknowledging the truth of God that he made them male and female? Now, I think we should love people that are transgender, love people that are con- that are struggling in that area and love people that have decided to live a gay lifestyle. We should love them. We should be Christ to them. I mean, I think the Women's Center does a great job not condemning people, but sharing the love of Christ with them. Absolutely. A few weeks ago, when we, when we prayed, and we prayed for repentance, and we talked about some of these things, there were some people that got up and left. And it broke my heart. But I cannot not speak truth. Because truth is the thing that's going to set them free. But I love them. Maybe you haven't acknowledged that God has created all things out of nothing. Maybe you think that we've evolved over billions of years or millions of years from primordial soup, right? And yet scripture clearly, I think, teaches that we are a special creation made by God. and He spoke everything into existence. We did not evolve from animals or monkeys or whatever it may be. But yet our culture is clearly denying the truth. And it's in our schools. It's everywhere. It's in our colleges. I mean, Paul just nails it. Well, God nails it, and Paul just wrote it down in Romans 1. We just exchange the truth for a lie because that's what we want. Because when we can do that, we can live however we want. And that's why we say the gospel's offensive. No one said the gospel's easy, Right? It's love, it's, it's freedom, it's glorious, but no one says it's easy. Anybody tells you that, it's, it's, you know, everybody, oh, just love Jesus, everything will be great. No, man, it gets hard. God is there with us to help us, to walk us with us, to give us grace, to give us mercy. Maybe this morning you have yet to acknowledge that Jesus is divine sinless, and also human, both, and that he died on a cross some 2,000 years ago and then raised from the dead three days later. Maybe you will not acknowledge that truth. And I will tell you, if you do not acknowledge that truth, no other truth is going to matter at this point. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that someday everybody will acknowledge that truth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So the acknowledgement is going to happen. It's when it happens and when it happens is going to determine your eternal destiny. I hope today that you will acknowledge that life begins at conception. I hope that today that you will believe that, acknowledge that God has created us male and female and that he's made marriage for that very special purpose. I hope today that you acknowledge that Jesus 
was the Son of God who came to take upon the sins of the world. And if you will be found in Christ, you can be forgiven from all of your guilt and shame and spend eternity with Him. That is my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you that we have come into this place and that we can come and look into the Word of God and see its beautiful truths. Even here in this Psalm of David in 18 verses, Father, we see a man coming face to face with the realities of the truths of who you are and what happens in him is it changes his heart to one of worship, one of thanks and admiration, one of being overwhelmed by who you are. And Father, we're so grateful that, that one of the things you showed him was this, I, this, this beautiful act of creation, that he was known by you even before conception, so that today we can stand on your truth. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we pray for all those that are struggling with many of these truths in our church, and our community. Father, I pray for Hope Rising and all the staff in their four locations. I thank you for Jenny. I pray that you just give her favor in her life. I thank you so much for what you've done in her life and her children's lives and her marriage. Father, how you alone have sustained her and, and just, just really loved on her like, like no one else can do. And that she is willing to come and carry that mantle, carry that torch for this biblical truth. Because we know that if we will continue to be faithful in, the, in preaching the word of God and teaching and loving on people, Father, that you work in those things. And there are less abortions today than there was last year because of that. There are more people that can claim you as Savior today because you've allowed us to share the gospel with them. And so, Father, we just praise you in all these things. May you be glorified above all of it. You've created us for your glory, Isaiah says. Thank you, Father, for who you are and loving us even though you know who we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.